15, beginning in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Pretend this morning you open your browser and you read the following article. Dateline Jerusalem. In the aftermath of the annual Easter celebration of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, this city was shocked by the announcement that a decomposed body identified as that of Jesus was found in a long-neglected tomb. Rumor circulated last week that a very important discovery was about to be announced. Initial reaction of Christians here and around the world has been one of astonishment and bewilderment. We will have to wait and see just what effect this discovery will have on the 2,000-year-old religion. But it appears that Christianity can no longer claim that unlike other religions, the tomb of its founder is empty. A 2,000-year-old lie has come to an end. Obviously, this story is fictitious, fake news. Jesus is alive and well. He's risen from the dead. We have sensed his presence here this morning. But what if this report did prove true? Well, Paul tells us what would happen. Instantly, our faith would become futile. All that we've staked our lives on would collapse. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Our faith would crumble like a house of cards. See, Christianity is an empty religion without the empty tomb. It's the resurrection of Jesus that makes Christianity worthy of belief, that marks it as the only option for the objective mind. It's the resurrection that has drawn people through the centuries to embrace Christ. The resurrection of Jesus sets Christianity apart from all other religions. No one has ever duplicated his feet. Jesus rose from the dead never to die again, an unparalleled event in the history of human affairs. In John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews asked Jesus, what sign do you show to us? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, then the Jews said, it has taken 45 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his own body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. Jesus had predicted his resurrection in advance. In fact, more than once in the Gospels, Jesus told his disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem, that there he would be killed, and that on the third day he would rise again. By saying so, he hinged his identity and his credibility to his resurrection. Realize Jesus was more than just a clever philosopher or a moral teacher. He was Lord over time and space. He offered his resurrection as the ultimate proof. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, to hold the keys to life and death in his hands. On a spring morning, 1,987 years ago, at a tomb outside of Jerusalem, he proved it. 
Over the centuries, countless religious leaders have promised their disciples eternal life. Buddha taught the way to nirvana. Muhammad promised a place of wine and women and merriment. Scores of philosophers have made differing promises about the afterlife. In addition, all religions provide its adherents moral principles and subjective experiences. Transcendental goosebumps are about as common as sliced bread. Well, Jesus also promises eternal life and provides moral guidance and provides us spiritual experiences. But here's the difference. Jesus went significantly and decisively and uniquely farther than anyone else has ever gone. He didn't just expect us to take his word for it. He dared to base his claims on historically verifiable facts. Christianity is what the historians call falsifiable. It can be proven or refuted. It's subject to the scrutiny of inquiring minds. See, Jesus tied everything that he taught and claimed to a historical event, his resurrection. Philosophies and metaphysics can hide behind subjective criteria. I mean, who can argue with an experience? Let's say you worship azalea bushes. You pray to the great azalea out in your front yard. You say, wow, my life is more colorful since I trusted in the great azalea. I think you're a blooming idiot, but it's really my word against yours. Yet Christianity doesn't tie itself to metaphysical boast. If Jesus' resurrection was a lie or just the ruminations of ecstatic followers or even a carefully crafted ruse, it would have been easily refuted. Just produce the body of Jesus and Christianity would have disappeared. If death in the grave had held Jesus in its clutches, his whole life and ministry would have become suspect. If Jesus had gone the way of other men, he would have been branded a liar, drifted into obscurity, become just another Israeli imposter, even false Messiah. You see, I'm a follower of Jesus, not because he makes me feel good, though he does, nor because he's given me love and peace, though he has, not even because he's forgiven me of my sin and promised me eternal life, though I'm certainly trusting in that promise. No, the bottom line to my belief is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I'm too stubborn of a guy to turn my life over to someone for anything less. But how can you deny a man who has conquered death in the grave? Such a person can only be God. The resurrection substantiates forever that Jesus Christ is Lord. His words are true and his promises are forever certain. Two decades after his resurrection, Paul stood, after Jesus' resurrection, Paul stood in the theater there in Caesarea by the sea. He stood before a Roman governor and a Jewish king to testify of Jesus. He told them that the Hebrew prophets had foretold Messiah would die and live again. But when Governor Festus heard Paul use the term resurrection, he accused Paul of insanity. He said, Paul, you're not playing with a full deck, brother. Ancient paganism said that you had to be mad to make such a claim. The Romans believed in the afterlife, but never in a literal resurrection of a physical body. By the way, have you noticed that every Easter, the pseudo-history channel 
airs some program that claims that the doctrine of the resurrection was borrowed from pagan mythology. And they always do this. They suggest that the resurrection of Jesus was the invention of an overzealous church. That's just not true. That doesn't make sense. Festus was a Roman steeped in ancient paganism. And he considered the notion of a resurrection to be silly. You see, the message of the resurrection gave the church zero advantage in the ancient world. Rather than endear them to contemporary thought, it set them at odds. The only reason a person of antiquity would believe in the notion of a resurrection was if it were true. Well, Governor Festus was fresh off the boat from Rome. But the Jewish king Agrippa, he had been in Jerusalem when the news broke. He was privy to the evidence. In Acts 26, Paul calls him out. He says, for the king knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Agrippa would have had to be living under a rock not to have heard about the resurrection of Jesus. The Lord staged his greatest miracle in plain view. News was all over town. The tomb was empty. And no reasonable explanation had surfaced for this event other than Jesus was alive. In fact, for 40 days afterwards, Jesus' sightings became a common occurrence. Paul challenges King Agrippa and the crowd that day in Caesarea to examine the evidence, to investigate, and his challenge has echoed down through the ages. Dr. Frank Morrison, a rationalist lawyer, accepted this challenge, and he set out to prove that Christianity was a hoax, that the resurrection of Jesus had never really happened. He wrote a book, Who Moved the Stone?, But the title of the first chapter of Morrison's book read, The Book That Refused to Be Written. For in his quest to refute the resurrection, Morrison came to an unexpected conclusion. After closely considering the evidence, he realized that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true, and he became a follower of Jesus. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, a renowned professor of law at Harvard University, was an expert in the laws of evidence. He too examined the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and he found more legitimate legal evidence for the resurrection than for any other event in history. Today, I want us to take on Paul's challenge and to examine the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is there a convincing, compelling case for the claim that Jesus is alive, or is his resurrection just a cruel hoax? Could the case for the resurrection stand up in a courtroom under the pressure of cross-examination, under the scrutiny of skeptical minds? Well, I'm convinced it can. I believe the evidence is overwhelming. This morning, I want to offer two pieces of principal evidence, and then I'll support the principal evidence with numerous examples of circumstantial evidence. The principal evidence is Exhibit A, the empty tomb, and exhibit B, the numerous eyewitnesses. Well, exhibit A, the empty tomb. In Luke 24, verses 1 through 3, we're told this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, certain women came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You know, there are many different burial sites in the world that attract thousands of visitors each year. There's the Pyramids of Giza, there's the Taj Mahal, Westminster Abbey, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington Cemetery, even the Tomb of Cyrus in Iran. But each of these cemeteries are famous for what they contain. The most renowned tomb in the world, visited by the most people, is famous for what it doesn't contain. The garden tomb in Jerusalem is the most famous tomb because it's an empty tomb. And yet people ask, how do we know the empty tomb proves that Jesus is risen? Perhaps there's another explanation. And throughout the years, skeptics have offered a whole smorgasbord of fanciful, fictitious theories as to what happened to the body of Jesus. The problem, though, is that none of them seems to fit the facts. For example, there is the wrong tomb theory, that the women just went to the wrong tomb. They saw a shroud there, but no body, and they assumed that Jesus had risen. A number of years ago, Kathy and I, we traveled down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where she had grown up. My wife wanted to visit her father's grave. He died when she was 10 years old. And we drove to this huge open graveyard where there were no tombstones, only ground-level markers. Though it had been 20 years since her dad had passed and since she had been there, Kathy knew the exact spot where her dad was buried. To me, it's demeaning and it's preposterous to suggest that these faithful women who dearly loved Jesus had in just three days forgotten his body's whereabouts. Besides, the grave was the property of a wealthy Jew, Joseph of Arimathea. It was well-known real estate in Jerusalem. Had he forgotten his own grave? Also, the Jews and Romans, they posted guards at the grave. Could they not recall where they had been dispatched? Surely, if the disciples went to the wrong grave, when they started preaching the resurrection, their enemies would have uncovered their mistake by just presenting the body. They didn't. Because Jesus was alive. But there's another theory. They call it the swoon theory. Some skeptics say that Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted. He fell unconscious. The disciples thought that he was dead. They took his body off the cross. They put him in a cold, damp tomb where the chilly air revived him. Hey, the religion of Islam was an early perpetrator of this myth. The Quran suggests that Jesus just pretended to be dead, that he feigned his death. Similar theories suggest that Jesus was drugged and appeared dead, yet wasn't. Again, all these ideas fly in the face of the facts. Understand, nobody debates that Jesus was crucified and realized the point of crucifixion. It was always execution. It was death. Professionals oversaw the operation. Killing was their job. The spear thrust through Jesus' ribcage was to make his death certain. Out came blood and water. A spear through a lung and the heart ensures one's death. There's no backup for a perforated heart. And nobody drugged the Savior, though they tried. Remember, the Bible tells us that the executioners offered a narcotic to deaden the pain, which Jesus refused. He chose instead to bear the full brunt of sin's punishment. The Savior was sober, no doubt about it. 
Recall, too, that Jewish burial required dressing the corpse with as much as 100 pounds of spices and then wrapping it tightly in wound strips of cloth. And so you tell me, how does a man who suffered a severe loss of blood, the trauma of torture, a ruptured heart, and the suffocation of burial awaken three days later to free himself from the shroud and the spices to walk on impaled feet, to pop his shoulders back into joint, to tack up his internal organs, and with heavily damaged hands, move a two-ton stone, fight a trained group of Roman soldiers, then be in such condition as to impress his disciples. Well, if you believe that, I've got some swampland I'd like to interest you in. It takes more faith to believe that Jesus didn't die and rise again than to believe that he did. A third explanation for the empty tomb is the hallucination theory. That the resurrection of Jesus was the result of the disciples' wishful thinking. That his followers simply saw what they wanted to see. But have you read the Gospels? For a hallucination to occur, there has to be some prior anticipation. These disciples had no expectation of a resurrection. They even doubted the first reports that he was alive. You remember when the women came back with the news, Peter and John, they ran to the tomb to see for themselves, and they left still with their doubts. Thomas refused to believe until he had seen the scars in Jesus' hands and in his side. Again, hallucination requires an explanation, I'm sorry, an expectation to plant the suggestion in one's mind. The disciples had no such anticipation. In addition, Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 that 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive at the same time. Understand, hallucination is a private phenomenon. A group the size of 500 people don't all freak out simultaneously and see the same illusion. Well, a fourth theory is the legend theory. This is the idea that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend that developed over time. That stories about Jesus passed from mouth to mouth, and as they did, they were embellished until they became mythological. Of course, this would be true. If if this were true, it would mean that the New Testament had to have been written many years after the fact, in the 3rd or 4th century perhaps, late enough so that no one alive at the time of Jesus would be around to refute the author's exaggerated assertions. But the truth is, is that the New Testament was probably written within 30 years of what it reports. We have New Testament fragments dating back to 120 AD and quotations from even earlier. You see, the New Testament was written at a time when the eyewitnesses were alive and could have either refuted or validated its claims. They would have been cross-examined, in other words. If an event like the resurrection were not true, the New Testament would have quickly been shot down as false. And of course, the granddaddy of all the cover-ups was the stolen body theory. The first false explanation for the empty tomb. It was posed just hours after Jesus' resurrection. Matthew 28 verse 11 tells us, Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money, gave them hush money, to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night 
and stole him away while we slept. Now, what a preposterous statement. It's contradictory on the face of it. If the soldiers slept, how did they know it was the disciples who stole the body? What lawyer wouldn't love to cross-examine that testimony? Besides, these soldiers would have never slept on duty. A legionnaire would lose his life for botching an assignment. And tell me, which of the disciples was brave enough to risk his life to slip behind a Roman battalion, 16 soldiers strong, move a two-ton stone, and then walk off with the body? The night before, these men had already proven their cowardice. The disciples had bailed on Jesus when he needed them most. When Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were behind closed doors, afraid that they would be next. And if the men who followed Jesus had conspired to lie about the resurrection, what would have been their motive? Because they believed in his resurrection, they lived the rest of their lives in obscurity and in poverty. They were persecuted to the point of death. Around 65 AD, Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down in the city of Rome. History tells us that Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. James was beheaded. Thomas preached in India and was impaled on the end of a spear. Bartholomew was skinned alive in Armenia. All the disciples but John died a martyr's death for the gospel's sake. Here's my point. A person might lie for money or for fame or for increased status. If they became a millionaire as a result of their belief in the resurrection, then that would be a motive. But no one submits to torture and ultimately death for what they know to be a hoax. Chuck Colson, the hatchet man for President Richard Nixon, he remembers the Watergate scandal and how quickly the president's chief allies all distanced themselves from Nixon to save their own skin. Colson compares Nixon's aides to the disciples. He says the most powerful men around the American president couldn't keep alive for three weeks. And you'd have me believe the apostles, powerless, persecuted, exiled, many martyred, their leader Peter crucified upside down, common men gave their lives for a lie without even breathing a word to the contrary? Impossible. The only explanation for the empty tomb that fits the facts is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Only one person could have moved that stone, and that was Jesus himself. But I also want you to look at Exhibit B. Exhibit B, the numerous eyewitnesses. For not only does Jesus' empty tomb prove his resurrection, even more impressive were the multitude of eyewitnesses that testified of seeing the risen Christ. The Gospels speak of the women at the tomb, namely Mary Magdalene. She saw Jesus. Peter had a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Jesus came to him. Two men walking on the road to Emmaus, the 11 disciples minus Thomas, and then later the, 12, the 11 disciples plus Thomas, or 10 disciples plus Thomas. Then there was the case where the seven disciples were eating breakfast with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that for the 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. 
For six weeks later, he kept dropping in on the disciples, proving he was alive and never far from reach. Jesus adds to the list of eyewitnesses here in 1 Corinthians, or Paul adds to the list of eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He says, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And then he adds, of whom the greater part remain to the present. In other words, he's saying most of these guys are still alive and kicking. Essentially, he's saying, if you don't believe me, here's some addresses. Go look up these guys. Follow up. They'll give you their own testimony. Realize, if you brought a group of 500 people into a courtroom, and each person spent just 10 minutes on the witness stand, their collective testimony would take 83 hours. That's impressive. Just two or three corroborating witnesses will send a person to jail today. The resurrection's day in court would have proven to be the most lopsided trial in history. And notice, too, that none of these eyewitness reports were staged or scripted. In fact, the first person Jesus appeared to was Mary, a woman. This would have never happened if the disciples were fabricating a hoax. Women in Jewish culture were considered unreliable witnesses. They were thought to be too emotional. Even the disciples didn't believe Mary at first. Nothing about any of the eyewitness reports even hints of a conspiracy. In fact, the testimonies were so diverse and random, it would be impossible for the most skilled attorney to cast doubt or aspersion on their conclusions. You know, there are several ways that an attorney will try to discredit an eyewitness. First, he tries to prove that he or she was motivated to lie, that there was a motive. We've already noted that that wasn't the case with the followers of Jesus. They were persecuted for what they preached, not rewarded. The second way you impugn an eyewitness testimony is to prove that what they saw was an illusion or a hallucination. They were mistaken. This was a figment of their imagination. And it's interesting, the resurrected Christ himself was careful to leave behind evidence that made that impossible to do so. Remember, he invited Thomas to touch his scars. He proved to him that his body was real. The women grabbed hold of his feet and wouldn't let go and worshipped him. Jesus even ate and digested the fish and bread by the seashore to prove that he was real, that his body was real. It was obvious to the disciples that Jesus, the Jesus who appeared to them was not a ghost. He was not a vision or an apparition. He was real. You know, psychologists also tell us that there are certain conditions under which an, an hallucination is prone to occur, none of which were true of Jesus' post-resurrection sightings. First, a person who hallucinates is usually prone to a vivid imagination or somebody who has an excitable nature, of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, you know, perhaps you could make that case for the women, but not the hard-headed fishermen, not, not the pragmatic tax collector, certainly not the militaristic zealot. And yet these were the disciples who died for their testimony. Second, a hallucination is a subjective experience. It's highly personal. It's unlikely that two people would have the same hallucination at the same time. And yet, again, Paul tells us that 500 people saw the risen Christ simultaneously. And then third, environment, environmental factors often contribute to a hallucination. 
dim lighting or a relaxed mood or muted colors or sounds. But Jesus appeared in a variety of settings. To women in the morning, to two men in the afternoon, to the disciples at night, by a road or by a lake or in a house. And then fourthly, a person who hallucinates usually repeats it at some other time in their life. Yet the disciple sighting of Jesus lasted for 40 days, then ceased. Well, fifth, and we mentioned this earlier, for a hallucination to occur, there needs to be some kind of anticipation. A mother sits on her porch and waits for a son to come home as he's done in the past, even though her son died several months previously. This is the type of person who is prone to a hallucination. But the folks who saw the risen Jesus were shocked by it. There was no expectation. The women coming to the tomb, they were coming to anoint the corpse. They had spices in their hands. The disciples thought they'd seen a ghost when they saw Jesus. Thomas was so skeptical. He told, when he was told the news that Jesus had risen, he refused to believe it until he had seen for himself and had touched his scars. You know, Paul, too, was a hostile witness. When he saw Jesus, he was on his way to kill Christians. He certainly didn't expect to meet the person he was persecuting. All the eyewitness sightings of the risen Christ were legit. In fact, if you were on trial and the prosecution put this kind of case together against you, I'd suggest you ask for a plea bargain. You wouldn't have much of a chance. And not only does the Bible testify of the resurrection of Jesus, there are secular sources that do the same. Roman citizens named Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, the historian Suetonius, even the Jewish Talmud make reference of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, on the Roman payroll no less, wrote this, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principled men among us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. And the tribe of Christians named from him are not extinct at this day. This was from the pen of a non-Christian. And yet along with the empty tomb and the eyewitness reports, there's additional circumstantial evidence we could consider as well. For starters, what explains the transformation that occurred among the disciples? Overnight, these men go from wimps to bold witnesses. Something colossal had to have lit a fire under them. They challenged the very men who had crucified Jesus, the men they had run from, the priestly hierarchy. And what was their message? Their rallying cry was the resurrection of Christ. Think, too, of the birth of the church. What provoked the first Jewish believers to leave behind their Jewish moorings, forsake the Mosaic law, and trust in Jesus as the way to God? Nothing less than his bodily resurrection could have uprooted their tradition. And what about the New Testament? This was a document founded on the reality of the resurrection. Do you think it's possible for the world's all-time bestseller to be based on an event that never actually happened? I don't think so. And why do we worship on Sunday? Have you ever thought about this? 
It's no small matter. For 1,400 years, God's people were Saturday worshipers. Why suddenly change to Sunday? What could prompt such a dramatic change? Well, it's because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week on Sunday. And lastly, but certainly not least, look at the millions of changed lives down through the centuries. No one in history, the history of mankind, has come close to exerting the influence on more people than Jesus of Nazareth. His work is not the effort of a dead man. Obviously, based on his unceasing activity, Jesus is alive and well. Thomas Arnold, a professor of history at Oxford University, summed it up. No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence than the fact Christ died and rose from the dead. In the early 1920s, on the heels of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, A communist proponent was sent from Moscow to Kiev to lead an anti-God rally. And for an hour, he abused the Christian faith. He mocked and ridiculed every truth that Christ died for and that the Christians cherished. When he was done, he opened the floor for questions. One Orthodox priest asked to speak. The old priest, he stood up and he turned to the crowd behind him. And in his best liturgical speech, he shouted the ancient Easter greeting, Christ is risen. That's when everyone in the auditorium rose to their feet and responded, He is risen indeed. One fact stood in the way of the atheist propaganda that day, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. It's been said the resurrection of Jesus stands fast as a fact unaffected by the ways of skepticism that ceaselessly through the ages beat against it. Friends, the evidence is in and the verdict is certain. Jesus is risen. God, the author of Christianity, made a daring move. He placed all his eggs in one basket. He played the devil, winner take all. God staked everything on one miraculous event. If Jesus had failed to rise again, he could be ignored and ridiculed. But if he succeeded, he wins the right to rule our hearts forever. The resurrection of Jesus is the most decisive event in human history. It made Judaism obsolete and defeated paganism. It transformed and energized deflated disciples. It eventually conquered the Roman Empire and changed the scope of history since. And it will continue to alter lives for ages to come. If Jesus' physical body decomposed in Jerusalem dirt, or if it were eaten by wild dogs, Christianity is a crock. Yet if the resurrection is true, then the risen Lord Jesus will decide your eternal destiny. I hope you believe him. You don't want to trifle with the master of the universe who holds the keys to life and death. St. Augustine wrote of the risen Christ, He rose from the grave and departed from our sight that we might return to our heart and there find Him. For He departed, and behold, He is here. Jesus the Christ came out of the empty tomb to inhabit our empty hearts. To spurn that truth is to deny Him His rightful place. It's to deny Jesus the spoils of victory. Is it any wonder the punishment for unbelief is so severe? Hey, if God were going to visit us, 
Can you think of a more convincing way for him to reveal his identity than to overcome death? Don't miss the obvious here. Jesus has risen from the dead. That makes him God. Don't keep him on the outside of your life looking in. Open your heart to him today. Father, we thank you. 